beginning to open the field of awareness, open the field of mindfulness to begin to include uh, that very interesting and powerful world of thought, emotions, mental states, reactions, moods. So tonight I thought I would talk about the third foundation of mindfulness, which is a mindfulness of mental states. Let me read something from the Buddha. This is from an extremely well-known sutta, Discourse of the Buddha on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. It's the Satipatthana Sutta. Yogis, this is a direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, yogis, a yogi abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and greed for the world. He abides contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. He abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetous and grief for the world. This discourse and the four foundations of mindfulness, they provide the framework for what we're doing here. They provide the framework for the method that we're using. The four foundations of mindfulness are this. The first one is the body. And clearly that's the one we've been highlighting and focusing most of our attention. And the primary one being uh, mindfulness of breathing. But the fact is there are many contemplations related to this first foundation. There's contemplation of breathing. There's contemplation of Uh, full body awareness, uh, contemplation of the four postures, uh, experiencing the body, focusing on the four elements, the element level in the body. Those are all different contemplations of the body, the first foundation. Second foundation of mindfulness is feelings. And feelings are the texture, the, the, the feeling quality of a particular experience. And there are three different feelings, both for the, mind, for the mind and for the body, in their physical sensation, physical feelings, um, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, and mental, both physical, um, no, mental, both pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So that's the feeling quality. In other words, when you feel that tension in your body, it's an un- it, it has a feeling quality to it, which is unpleasant. You know, when you're feeling very peaceful, in a sitting, it's very pleasant feeling quality to that particular mind state. So that's the feeling quality. That's the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation of mindfulness, the one I'm going to be speaking about tonight, uh, thoughts, emotions, moods, you know, some of the hindrances that we've been talking about, uh, different reactions that we have, reactions of clinging or aversion, anger and fear. Those are mental states. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness is laws of experience. And the fourth foundation really has to do with more the wisdom, 
the wisdom piece in practice, which is beginning to see the bigger picture. We begin, as we sustain our attention on our experience, we begin to see kind of the laws of nature in operation. We begin to see the impermanent nature of experience. We begin to not identify with our experiences as much, and so we begin to get insight into selflessness. And finally, we begin to understand the nature of our suffering. You know, the more we're able to be with our experience and to investigate it and look at it, the more we begin to understand that we are suffering, but the more we begin to understand the path leading to freedom. So those insights really have to do with the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Related to the third foundation of mindfulness, let me just go through kind of a few of the common states of mind uh, that we encounter, different moods, different reactions that we face when we begin to pay attention. Things like the planning mind, we've already talked about worry, fear, anger, anxiety, desire, fantasy, sadness, grief, doubt, peaceful feelings, restless feelings, boredom, agitation, irritation. Kind of a really wide range of different states of mind we begin to experience when we start paying attention. Now, in terms of the framework of the practice, obviously we began with the Buddha, uh, we began we began with the body, and to me that's the genius of the Buddha. You know, that's the genius of this particular method, because everybody, you know, you can't do this practice without discovering this one major insight, which is that the world of thought, emotion, mood, reactions—they're incredibly. It's an incredibly powerful and seductive world. And if we started off our practice with the mindfulness of the third foundation, it would be an extremely challenging and difficult practice. And so he started off with the practice of working with the body as a way of beginning to settle the mind, as a way of training the mind to become more present. In fact, the four foundations of mindfulness are known also as forms of presence. When we say practice being present, this is really what we're saying. It's practice the four foundations of mindfulness. In other words, begin to pay attention to your experience. Begin to pay attention to these different foundations, these different aspects of our experience. And so starting with the body is a way, obviously, is a way of developing concentration of settling the mind, of getting more focused, or of getting more present and more grounded, of collecting the mind. And that, of course, allows us to develop a capacity to then open the field up and to actually apply mindfulness to that world of thought. Speaking about the power of thought, Think of all the plans that you've made, the places you've gone, the people that you've spoken to, all without moving an inch. (laughs) Think of the worlds that we've created, the relationships we've started and destroyed, the arguments, the fights, the fantasies, the romances, the desires, the problem solving, all of that stuff that makes up what we're looking at, what we're dealing with when we sit, when we start watching the mind. 
It's just full of all this stuff. And a lot of the time, we take it as real. We really do. We actually, many times, we're there. Oh, we wish we were there. <laughs> Depends what the fantasy is. So, one of the most powerful insights, and it's an insight that at the beginning can be kind of discouraging, but with practice and when you begin to develop more trust and awareness and a sense of inner balance comes about through practice, um, this insight isn't so discouraging. In fact, it, 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 as I said the other night, it helps begin to cultivate this uh, sense of humor that we have to develop uh, towards our own minds. Um, but what we, what we begin to see is that we're really subject to these thoughts. You know, we're subject to our emotions. We're subject to our moods. We're subjected by our reactions. You know, we're really at the mercy of our minds. We're at, at the mercy of the untrained mind. The Buddha was really clear about that. We suffer because of it. We suffer. So it's important and I would say it's essential to begin to widen the field of mindfulness, to begin to include this particular world, this particular world of thought. Sometimes the danger in sort of concentration practice, you know, some of us, most of us have been doing the shamatha practice, which is a concentration practice. And it offers tremendous rewards and fruits. And it really, realistically, makes it, enables us to begin to do the Vipassana practice. Opening the field right away would be very difficult for most of us. But one of the problems that we run into, and it's a misconception in in, uh, meditation circles sometimes, even for people who have been practicing for a while, which is to begin to see that thought, see thought as kind of an enemy. It's kind of an enemy of progress. Uh, if you were an advanced yogi, you wouldn't have many thoughts. Uh, if you're an advanced yogi, you wouldn't really have emotions, you know, or you wouldn't find yourself in a bad mood or a happy mood or anything. You'd be just so balanced and equanimous that you wouldn't experience things intensely or uh, the mind would be just very silent. Uh, and somehow you'd have to make your way through the world without those thoughts. Um, <laughs> because... Thoughts are actually quite useful. Uh, they have their place. Um, so it's important when we begin to see practice in a wider way to realize that thoughts are not our enemy. In fact, they simply need to be, uh, mindfulness needs to be cultivated in regards to thought so that we begin to see thought actually as a mindfulness object. You know, it's a very slippery object. You know, the body, the breathing, feeling the cushion, feeling the floor. You know, it, it, it feels more stable, at least. It's changing, actually, from one moment to the next. But in some ways, it's, it's easier to feel the cushion, to be mindful of those particular mind states. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that. But certainly, what we begin to do by training the mind, by shifting our relationship to the world of mental states, emotions, moods, reactions, by shifting our relationship from one of being caught and identified in that world, you know, taking that world as self, being caught by it, and shifting our relationship from that to being mindful 
of that world. That is a radical change in approach, a completely radical approach. It's a very simple shift in a way. It's just not being caught. Let's be mindful of it. It's not that complicated. But we have tremendous conditioning, tremendous forces working on us that tell us that, you know, thoughts, emotions, moods really, really matter. You know, it's like life and death. Instead of seeing that thoughts, emotions, moods, reactions arise under certain conditions, they express themselves. They're forms of energy. You know, they follow their nature, and they change. They change. If you wanted to hold on to a particular mind state, and you tried, you know, really clinging hard, say you felt peaceful, and you really wanted to hold on to that, you couldn't, no matter how tight you held. That's not its nature. It'd be like squeezing energy. You couldn't hold it. If you were feeling really angry, and you decided you wanted to hold on to that anger, and you wanted to keep it, you wouldn't be able to do it. It would change. You'd start getting hungry. You'd start thinking about lunch. You'd start thinking about that yogi over there. You know, you'd start fantasizing about this or that. And the mind would move away from it. That's its nature. That's its nature. But we don't see it. We don't see it. We get caught. Over and over again, we get caught. We get convinced. What the Buddha said was, only what mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. Only what mindfulness contemplates can wisdom understand. And so giving birth to wisdom in terms of working with mind states, the first step is to begin to pay attention to them. But to pay attention to them, not so much thinking about them. And that's often the confusion in practice is oftentimes, you know, people will come and report and say, well, you know, I'm, th- you know, I'm, I'm working something out with that mind state and, you know, kind of contemplating it and kind of figuring out why it's happening and things like that. And I, I think, well, okay, but instead, see if you can just simply be mindful of that particular mind state. See if you can just be with it. See if you can begin to notice its nature. Instead of so busy figuring out how come we're having a particular experience, how about just having the experience? Just being with it. Let it operate. Let it express itself. Instead of trying to control our minds, instead of trying to fix certain mental states, instead of that, let's just see what they're like. Let's see if we can observe them, open to them, without any value judgments at all. And that, of course, is the power of mindfulness. That's the power of that kind of intelligence, that innate intelligence that we keep talking about. That gives you that ability to do that. It gives you an ability to open to a mind state, whether it's anger or fear, anxiety, worry, planning, restlessness, boredom, desire, peacefulness. It allows you to open to that in a fundamentally fresh way and to see if you can hold that experience while it's happening with some degree of awareness, bringing loving attention to that process while it's unfolding. One particularly uh, tenacious 
a difficult state of mind. One that definitely comes up in practice, and obviously it's prevalent energy in our everyday life, although a lot of times we don't recognize it uh, because it's suppressed a lot of the time. But this energy is, of course, the energy of fear. So beginning to include these different states of mind when they arise, what, what does that mean? Well, what it means is beginning to pay attention. If one, say, in terms of working with fear, what it means is to begin to open to that energy. When fear arises, is it possible to meet it with non-judgmental attention? Not so easy. The reason it's not so easy to do and why it takes training is because we have a very complex and conditioned relationship to that particular energy. You know, all of our, a lot of our conditioning is quite individual. I mean, there's certain common denominators often with people in terms of fear, how they relate to it. But quite often, different kinds of relationships to fear is, is that we judge it. Okay, this energy of fear arises, so we judge it. We judge it as not good, usually. We usually judge it as something bad. We avoid feeling it. Okay, nobody wants to feel that fear. Okay, in ways that we avoid feeling it is we, of course, suppress it. We all know that. Uh, we ignore it when it's happening. You know, we try to kind of keep it at a distance. Or we avoid certain situations that bring up fear. That's a really common one. That's actually almost universal. Uh, different conditions that scare you. You know, you kind of skirt around. Sometimes we obsess about it. If we're not avoiding it, oftentimes we're obsessing about it. You know, it comes up, how come, how come, how come? Uh, when's it going to go away? When's it going to go away? I've got to get rid of this experience. I've got to get rid of it. In order to be happy, I have to be fearless. I don't know if I've met anybody that's fearless yet. You know, for some reason, that is often like an ideal uh, for meditators, but it's usually really just an ideal. Uh, most of us have some degree of fear in us, and quite often, a lot of us have a lot of shame about fear. You know, like we're embarrassed by it. Uh, and so we hide it. You know, we hide it from ourselves and we hide it from each other. You know? And the reason we have such a complex relationship to fear is because we've been trained. We've been conditioned to have that relationship to fear. I know as a boy for myself, you know, I grew up deeply conditioned to not express my fear, not to let people know that you were afraid. You know, that was just part of my conditioning in my family or, or at school was to basically hide your feelings. And so, of course, that makes it particularly challenging, I'd say, when you want to be, when you want to start working with that energy when it arises, because when you do sit, eventually fear is going to arise at one point or another. So learning to relate to it with mindfulness, with loving attention, it's a challenge. But with practice, with practice it becomes possible. The things that we learn with our mindfulness practice and working with fear, for instance, is learning how to open to it without an agenda. It's a big step, but it's an important one. To open to fear without wanting to get rid of it, without wanting it to go away, but just to simply see what the experience feels like. Try that sometime when you, when you feel frightened. See if it's possible, instead of moving away from that experience, you don't even have to move towards it. Just opening to it and see what it's like to actually feel it. Feel it with some degree of awareness. 
And what comes out of that is insight. Insight into the nature of fear. See, as long as we avoid it, it just gets stronger. You know, it's perplexing. It becomes solid. It becomes a weight that we're carrying around with us. But when we can shift our relationship to seeing, beginning to see that it's this energy, you know, it's, it's arising under certain conditions. And as we pay attention to it, we begin to notice how it expresses itself. How does it express itself in your life? You have to answer that one. To be free of fear, you have to answer that question. How does it express itself? Observe the conditions that it arises under. What does it feel like? Can you feel it in the body? A lot of times fear you can feel on a very physical level. Different sensations. Throat, chest, face, stomach. It's expressing itself. It's a form of energy. And it's a form of energy that's very, very, very similar to that thunderstorm that we experienced Friday night. For some of us, you know, at the height, that would be panic. You know, that's, that's what panic is like. It's just totally intense and totally overwhelming. But you can see that there was a range in that thunderstorm. You know, there was a range. There was a lot of energy. But there was a range. Some of the times it was very powerful. You could see it coming. You could feel it building. had a certain energy intensity. And then, lo and behold, its nature, of course, was to pass and change. And, you know, the next day, they were back, you know, in milder form, but there were still clouds, and there was still thunder, there was still energy, but it was expressing itself in a very different way. Fear is just like that. It's just like that. It's a form of energy, and it arises under certain conditions, just like that thunderstorm. It arises under certain conditions, expresses itself, and passes. The difficulty and the difference for us is that We don't identify with those thunderclouds, but we identify or claim the energy of fear because it's happening in our minds. It's happening to us. It's happening in our bodies. And so there's a tendency to claim that energy. Take it as me or mine. It's my fear. That's who I am. I'm a fearful person. And of course, what does that do? We become afraid of it. Right? We, don't, we don't want to see ourselves that way, so we hide from it. We feel ashamed by that. So we're claiming it. We're taking it as self. We're no longer seeing it for what it is. And, of course, that's what's causing the suffering. That's what prevents us from letting it go. We contain that energy through identifying with it. And we actually strengthen it. We strengthen it that way. So the key to letting go of fear, it's ironic, actually. I mean, extremely ironic. But the the key to letting go of fear, moving in a direction of of less fear towards fearlessness, the key is to actually be with the experience as it is, to face it, to face it. But realistically, sometimes mindfulness is not enough in terms of working with fear. The mind is just too out of balance. And the Buddha was quite insightful about that fact. And there was a, the, the practice of metta, for instance, was taught as an antidote to fear, as a way of bringing the mind into balance. Not as a way of getting rid of fear, because that's creating an enemy of fear. We don't want to do that. But what we want to do when we meet fear is to see if we can find an inner balance, a poise. Can we empower ourselves with awareness? 
or metta. Metta practice is extremely useful when one has a lot of fear in one's life. Sending metta to oneself or even sending metta to what you're afraid of. Sending metta to what you're afraid of. If you're afraid of a person, if you're intimidated by them, try sending them metta sometime. See what happens. The wonderful thing about metta is it creates a sense of connection. We recognize commonality in that. And the whole energy of fear, of course, is when we're caught by it, it creates a sense of separation. Sense separation, and we feel vulnerable in that. We feel unprotected. Another mind state that can really overwhelm us sometimes, uh, particularly, I think, on retreat. We have a lot of different ways of avoiding this one in our everyday life, but one that it's kind of hard to avoid this some of the time anyway on retreat, which is, of course, boredom. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a powerful, actually, state of mind. Uh, and there's often, we often meet boredom with a lot of resistance. And again, the reason... One of the reasons why it's difficult to just sit there and be bored is because of the resistance to that energy, the judgments about it, uh, particularly the value judgments, or, or maybe it makes us feel uncomfortable or it creates a lot of self-doubt in the mind. And also, we've conditioned ourselves, in this culture particularly, I think. This culture, one can't tolerate boredom at all. I mean, that, there's just so many places where we can distract ourselves and move away from boredom. There's so many toys. Uh, there's just so many ways that we can just distract ourselves. If, from, if we get bored for even one minute, you know, we have 90 cable channels. So even if you're watching TV, the moment you get bored, click, click, click. You know, if you're home, you know, and you're bored, or, and oftentimes what's under boredom? Loneliness, feeling disconnected, not, not knowing what to do with yourself feeling isolated, what do we do? We reach out. This, it was this interesting commercial on TV, actually. Um, <laughs> one evening when I was bored, I <laughs> turned the TV on, and uh, as we all know, um, this has become a cell phone culture. I have one, and they're selling them all the time. They're selling cell phones and the service, you know, relentlessly on TV. And this is one commercial with, um, see if I can get her name straight, well-known actress, uh, Catherine Zeta, what is it? Zeta Jones. Everybody know her? Celebrity. Um, anyway, so she, she, you know, this company hired her, obviously, to to sell their product, and, and there was this one commercial where um, sort of the camera was focusing on this line in a post office, and there was about maybe 10 or 12 people standing in line, and everybody in the line was just incredibly bored and disconnected, and everybody's like staring out into space, and you know, not wanting to be there too. There was a lot of kind of, you know, just disheartening kind of expressions on people's faces, and there was this young guy that was you know, very disheartened. Um, so he was standing there, and then she 
clipped her, snapped her fingers, and all the action just froze. And then she came walking up to this guy, and she slipped a cell phone in his pocket. Um, and then she snapped her finger, and he opened his eyes, and he came back to, to life. And then he looked down, and he found the phone. And immediately, he calls his buddy. And his buddy's watching football. So now he's, like, really happy. And he's excited to be talking to his buddy, and that they're talking about this football game and all that. And, uh, you know, I think it's a pretty effective commercial, actually. You know, I mean, what it, what, of course, what the commercial is saying is if you feel bored, um, you know, go away, get away, you know, do something else, move away from where you are, move away from the present moment, because nobody wants to be bored. And just think of how disempowering that is. Think of how disempowering that is. On one hand, it's, kind of, it's a lighthearted commercial, but underneath, underneath it is, is this relentless fear about being with yourself and being with others. Because what you could see is that, think of what else that person could have done. Think about what you're going to do next when you leave this retreat and you go to the post office. Okay? What you're going to do is you're going to be aware that you're standing, <laughs> okay? that your feet are touching the floor. You're going to have your eyes open because you want to fit in. No doubt about that. You know, you're not going to kind of close your eyes and start counting your breath, okay? But you're going to learn. You're going to want to be present. You know, if you're a good yogi, you're going to want to be present. And you might watch your boredom or your impatience because the line is moving slowly. You know, you're watching your impatience. You're watching your reactions to the person in front of you. You're mindful of that. And if you're mindful of that, and you stay present, you might look around you and really look at people's faces. And you might see something. You know, and one thing you might see is just how much suffering there is in the room. You know, how much suffering there is. In the room. And you might want to reach out and actually talk to somebody. You know, or smile, or be friendly, or kind. Instead of racing off. You know, instead of rushing off. Instead of fantasizing or disconnecting. Being present, it's so rich. But to be present, one has to be willing to be with these different energies, these different states of mind when they come. Because there's a price in moving away from it. And there's a price in getting caught by them. And a lot of times what it is, is it's, it's a disconnection from what's real. And it's a disconnection often from what really matters. Most of our thoughts, I don't know if you've noticed this, this is kind of subtle, but I know some of the old yogis out here have noticed that. Most of our thoughts... At the center of our thoughts, so often, is self-interest. Self-interest. It's about self and what we want or don't want. You know, it's a very tiny universe, actually. Extremely tiny universe. And so we want to expand our universe here. You know, we want to uh, see the world in a little bit more expansive way than just our conditioned thinking about things. You know, our ideas, opinions, views, states of mind, reactions that we have. We want to expand from that place. See the world a little bit bigger.
as we begin to develop this ability to sustain our mindfulness, you know, in other words, the mindfulness gets a little bit more steady, and kind of the gaps of, in the awareness start getting a little bit smaller. You know, for most, it's difficult sometimes to assess that in one's own practice because oftentimes we sit back very critically looking at our practice and thinking, God, you know, I wandered away for, you know, the beginning of the tree, God, I wandered away for 20 minutes, and just never came back to the breath. And then, you know, somebody comes in, God, I wandered away for 10 minutes. God, I wandered away for 30 seconds. You know, God, I, I drifted away for five seconds and I missed that breath. You know, and you know the whole vibe is criticism, 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 criticism towards oneself because of, of getting caught by the wandering mind. But the reality is that everybody here, and I, I don't know if I'd bet my life on it, but I'd bet a lot <laughs> that a lot of those gaps are beginning to close a little bit. You know, either through just the relentless reminders and rigid structure of the place, or what, but. The gaps of awareness are closing a little bit, and the mindfulness is getting a little bit more sustained. In other words, we're noticing our experience in a more full way. Uh, we're noticing the way the mind works in a more full way. Uh, we're noticing the body more fully. And so that, that gives rise, rise to insight. That's actually why we're doing the practice, is because we want to see things clearly. We want to see things as they are. And what we begin to notice, and this is a significant insight to begin to see, is we begin to notice a pattern of relating to experience. We begin to notice patterns in how we react to experience in one pretty universal uh, kind of reaction that that we almost all share, all people I've known anyways, is that we tend to cling to pleasant experiences or want more of them. And we don't like and we don't want the painful experiences. And for a lot of us, well, we say, well, why not? You know, I mean, especially when, when you first begin the path, uh, why not? You know, why not uh, cling to pleasant experiences? And why not push away or avoid or try to get rid of the painful experiences in your life. And really, most of the world operates in that principle, which is, you know, to be happy, you need more pleasure. And to, be, and to avoid unhappiness, you need to avoid pain. It's a big problem with that, though. Big-time problem. And the problem is, is that's the source of our suffering, is that conditioned reaction to experience. That conditioned reaction of clinging to pleasant experiences and pushing away unpleasant experiences is really the source of our suffering. Why? Because the nature of any pleasant experience that you have is that it's going to be impermanent, that you cannot control it, it's conditioned, it's going to arise and pass away. And so, logically speaking, you know, the Buddhist teachings are incredibly clear and logical. If you cling to a moving train, you're in trouble. You know? Try to grab on. That's what we're doing all the time. And that's what we're doing on mind states all the time. We're clinging to the pleasant ones, you know, the joy, the fantasies, uh, peaceful feelings. We cling to them and we push away the restlessness, the boredom, the unpleasant mental qualities. And that causes suffering. Rather than simply opening and paying attention 
to pleasant experiences. Experiencing them fully, mind you. I'm not talking about creating distance between you and pleasure, but opening to it fully, but opening to it with awareness, with wakefulness, with an open heart. What happens is you can experience those pleasant states of mind very fully, but you also learn to let go of them because you get an insight into their nature, which is they're going to pass away, whether you cling or not. So you begin to learn not to cling. And one form of clinging is identifying, taking it as self. And after you've watched a mind state 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 times, after a while, you begin not to take it quite as seriously. You begin not to identify with it so much. And you begin to see that it's a process. It's a process that you don't need to cling to. Same with painful experiences. Same with pain. We spend so much of our life avoiding painful experiences. But the nature of life, life is full of pleasure and pain. That's the, and when we pay attention and we're awake, that's what we notice, is that we have many more pleasant experiences than we think we do. And we have many more unpleasant experiences than we think we do. So rather than contracting and getting tight and limiting your world out of fear or aversion, instead of that, opening to the pain, see what its nature is. You know, learning to open to the shoulders, the tension in the body, you know, the different unpleasant states of mind that come. And then notice the reaction to them, the wanting to get rid of them. All of that is your mindfulness practice. And the fruit of that is that you first you begin to open and you see the nature of pleasure and pain, but you also don't reinforce the reactions or all the ideas and concepts and value judgments about those pleasure and pain. And you begin to just open to the reaction itself, the aversion or the clinging, and you don't reinforce it. It's really that simple. You don't reinforce it anymore. You don't reinforce that conditioning you start learning to do something different with it. And that's precisely what this training is about, is learning how to do something different with your experience. Learning how to be free, inwardly free, inwardly balanced, open-hearted with your experience, rather than being pushed around or overwhelmed or caught by it. It's a different universe when you walk the path of awareness. Things shift and change. Our relationship to our minds, our relationships to our body go through a dramatic change over the course of time. We begin to suffer less. We begin to suffer less. So when you notice the clinging mind, lunchtime, that desire in the lunch line, Moving forward, why the line needs to move forward. You know, you're hungry. You want that food. You know, watch that desire. You know, watch that wanting mind. Watch the claim. Just be mindful of it without any value judgment about yourself at all. Just simply be aware of it. And what happens over the course of time is that you're not feeding that greed with more greed. You're not feeding the clinging mind with more clinging. And so gradually the mind begins to relax. You see it and you realize you don't have to act on it. You slow down inwardly. You become a little bit more still. You become a little bit more. And what you're discovering is a place of rest. 
inside. A place, a real refuge inside. Because instead of taking refuge in your desires or your fears, you know, you take refuge in seeing clearly, in a mind that's calm, collected. And when we talk about faith and practice, I'll finish here. When we talk about faith and practice, we're not really talking about convincing, you know, either convincing ourselves or being convinced. You know, faith comes out of working with all these challenges, working with the different mind states that you encounter, and learning how to discover balance, learning to discover some spaciousness around the mind, not being so uh, caught by the mind, the movement of the mind that's so out of our control. And when we begin to find a center, you know, a place of balance, a place of openness, not being pushed around or overwhelmed by what's going on in our mind, a lot of confidence develops and a lot of faith. You know, faith in ourselves, faith in our capacity to respond with wisdom, rather than react out of that conditioned place, out of habit. Rather than relating to the present through the past, we relate to the present with the present. We touch what's real. Okay, let's sit for a couple minutes. Okay, so bringing fresh attention to the present moment right now and feel the body as it's standing up and as you 
move out of the meditation hall, keep that quality of freshness in your practice. Don't let things become habit-forming. Just be mindful and present. Stay connected. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.